Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am Adam Pawatic. My co-host is Aaron Cameron. And today we are speaking with Jonathan Gitlin. He is the Senior Vice President, Investments and Residential from Rio Can. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam and Aaron, for having me. This is great. Really appreciate it. So I want to start, before we get into Rio Can and Rio Can Living and, and some of the particular projects you're working on, I'm curious how you got into this industry and, you know, where did you go to school? Where did you start in real estate? Do you always want to do this? You know, what, what's the what's the background? So it's underwhelming, but I'll get into it because you have the generosity of asking. Um, I was actually a, a real estate lawyer at uh, a firm, uh, a national firm called McCarthy Tetro. And uh, I was practicing for a number of years. I always had an aim to move over to the business side of the real estate business. But while I was a lawyer, I was quite ambitious and wanted to show the partners at the firm I was at that I can drum up business. I knew through a friend of a friend, a guy by the name of Ed Sunshine, and um, I thought I would go in to meet with Ed if given the opportunity and try and steal his legal business away from the firm that was currently doing it at the time. And so I did go and meet with him. And uh, at the time he said, I'm not giving you my legal business, but we had a really enjoyable chat. So I made a point year after year of going in and speaking with Ed. What year was this, just for context? This was, well, I I left law in 2005. Uh, So I started speaking with Ed in, call it 2001. And I sort of diarized every year year after year to hound Ed. And to, were, were they already, you know, Rio Can with, with one of the largest REITs or the largest REIT? I think Rio Can's major growth propulsion was in the early 2000s after they had done a joint venture with Kimco, who at the time was a very large U.S. Uh, retail REIT. And they invested a lot of money in assets alongside Rio Can. And that gave Rio Can sort of the rocket fuel to go out and buy a lot of very good retail assets. So it was, it was your presence that created the drive for them to... <laughs> To grow to where they are today. Uh, truthfully, that uh, that Kimco deal came. It was pre Gitlin. It was before <laughs> okay. I got there. But uh, so I, I ended up meeting with Ed sort of every year on the year, and uh, I guess I annoyed him enough to the point where he said, "You know what? Why don't you come and work for us and and uh, work in our investments group?" While I liked law, it took me about seventeen seconds to decide that uh, it was my future to go into the business side of real estate. So I switched over in 2005. As I said, I was the sort of the number two in the investments group until 2007, at which point I took over as the head of that group and, um, you know, focused on the acquisition and disposition of predominantly retail assets, uh, both here in Canada and in the U.S. for a number of years. And then, you know, a number of, a few years ago in 2016 or 15, sorry, when Rio Can made the decision to start really focusing on residential, um, I was given the additional task of heading up the residential program at Rio Can. So it's been uh, a great 13 years. And did you see the offer coming when uh, Ed made the offer or was it a bit of a surprise? Out of the blue. It was, uh, it was, uh, I literally remember it like it was yesterday. I got the call from, you know, who was at the time the number one person in investments who called me. I was in my kitchen at home because I got home from, uh, work fairly early that day. And uh, she said, I think I got something that might interest you. Come over tomorrow. I went over, she made me the offer. And uh, while I was, like I said, very happy and content in my role at uh, at the firm I was at, um, law is a tough grind. It's a tough, uh, tough job. It was a great learning experience for me, but I didn't foresee myself doing it for you know the, the rest of my life. So given the opportunity at a place like Rio Cam, which at the time was I would say institutional in the sense that it had a big balance sheet and it had uh, really um, a great reputation. It was also very entrepreneurial. So it was that perfect combination where I wasn't leaving this cushy law job for a fly-by-night developer who could wake up the next morning and say, you know what, I changed my mind, I'm going to fire you. Uh, It was a legitimate company with a serious track record. And, uh, you know, I, I always bought into Ed's vision and Rio Can's vision. They had a great reputation. So I was happy to make that leap and leave law and go into the business side. Through that process, I mean, before you got the job offer, at what point did you really think, I want to go work here? I want to work at this place or I want to work for, for Ed? The first time I met him. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'd met him in passing before, but sitting down with him and, you know, he had the generosity to give me sort of like an hour of his time. And here I was some snot-nosed lawyer trying to get his business. And he sat with me for an hour and, 
you know, if you've ever met Ed, you'll know that he's an exceptionally engaging but intellectual person. And so just having uh, had that experience of sitting with him and listening to his vision as to where the future of, of you know, of real estate is going and, and how he was going to grow RioCan, he had me pretty engaged at that point. So, you know, uh, when I thought about the places I could go as alternative career paths, RioCan was certainly right up there. A lot of our listeners are, are younger and probably in, in a state maybe not dissimilar to where you were then. What was the what was the approach when you're walking into his office sort of year after year? I mean, you're clearly not saying, hey, hire me, but how were you trying to convey to them, convey to him that you are somebody of value that he should be looking at? Very subtly. I use big words and try to sound intelligent. <laughs> um, I don't think I ever came out and said to him, I'm looking for a job, please hire me. But I think it's an important lesson for a lot of people in the industry. And this is why, by the way, um, I never or rarely turn down a request to meet with someone who's young and in the industry or looking to get into the You're industry. You're going to get bombarded with, with emails now. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. I welcome it because I think it's important for people simply to network because I think at the very least you'll learn something. I mean, I'm not suggesting that I'm some wise um, old sage, but I think, you know, whenever you're in these discussions with people in the industry and you're a fledgling member of that industry, you're going to learn something. And the best case is they'll remember you, be impressed by you and say, you know what, when the opportunity arises, I want to hire that person. And thankfully that was my circumstance with Ed and Rio can, you know, it's a great way to, for, younger people in the industry to learn. But I would also say it's a great way for old and tired executives like myself to understand what young people are thinking and what they want in a job and in a career. Um, because I think an important part of you know, having a company like RioCan or First National is you want to make it, you want to build the brand, you want to make it a place where people want to come and work. And that way you'll get the best talent out there. And I think an important part of that is being out there and meeting with people who are driven, motivated, educated, uh, and also understanding what those types of people want in a job. So we work very hard to make sure we have a finger on the pulse of, of what new professionals are looking for in a career, and we try to accommodate. Yeah, I know that attracting a talent in a you know, market like Toronto can be tough. I, I could be wrong. Aaron might know better than I can, but I think First National just got some sort of uh, award for one of the best employer lists. Yeah, well, there's, there's the top workplaces award, and then you can get a designation, which is one level above that. Which means I, you know, I think there's only a hundred of them they give out a year for the best workplaces in in Canada. And so, First National, this is the first time we've been we've been recognized. I think we've received the award before, which they give out to quite a number of companies. But we've actually got that special designation this year. I don't know what the exact name of it, though. Well, tell Maury that uh, I'm going to speak to him about maybe giving me a job because it sounds <laughs> a pretty good place to work. Now that Rio Can has turned into a grind, it's uh, time to move on, right? No, Rio Can has not turned into a grind. Law was a grind. It's actually funny that you say that. I mean, if I look at my social circle, I could name more friends that have law degrees practicing outside of that field than I could name practicing lawyers. It seems to be a common arc. Go to law school, get in the business, earn your stripes, and at some point saying, this is not the path for me, and taking this, you know, the skill set you've uh, It's a great base. Before. Yeah, it and a great base. You want, and you, I'm sure, and you, you can add on this, but you must rely on the stuff that you learned throughout those years as a lawyer on a regular basis. Yeah, for sure, Aaron. I think, uh, you know, the day I recognized how good a background in education it was, was the day I left. I think while I was practicing, which was, you know, a good six years of my life, and then, you know, an articling student before that, uh, and law school before that, I was hard-pressed to find utility in what I was doing. I was thinking, man, I'm working a lot of hours, um, but I'm really not actually learning anything practical. And then I'll tell you, the moment I went and worked elsewhere outside of the legal industry, I recognized that the attributes that accompany being a lawyer are critical and really helpful in the business world. And just some very brief examples without boring you guys too much. But, you know, A, you learn how to communicate very well as a lawyer. You have to, both written and oral. Uh, you learn how to negotiate, but you learn how to structure deals. You, you're always working to come up with the most efficient structure, which gives you sort of this analytical mm -hmm. mindset. And you're always looking for pragmatic ways to sort of put deals in motion and to structure them in a way that works for everyone. And it teaches you how to negotiate. So there were a lot of things that I, I walked away from that career knowing, and I agree with you. It's a great base and it's a great career, um, but it's not for everyone for their lifetime. Different, for different reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Want to jump into some of the you know more exciting projects that you're working on right now? I mean, it's a good starting point. Uh, Rio Can Living's relatively new, 
you know, what's the background thought on that? And what's mm-hmm. the kind of, yeah, I'm curious how long in the hopper has that been? And maybe, maybe we can add this and I don't know if I think they're correlated, but maybe they're not, but there was a large sale of assets in sort of secondary and tertiary markets that kind of led into this announcement. So I'm wondering how long historically this has been kind of in the plan or, you know, that the discussion has been going, but how do we shift Rio Can's direction into you know the 21st century and why? So there's a couple of different elements to that question, and so I'm going to tackle them one by one. Uh, first, the disposition program, and then I'll get into Rio Can Living and, and the, its evolution. The disposition program, it's really, we, you know, we characterize it differently. We call it an acceleration of our major market strategy. And the reason we say that is because we've really been pruning our portfolio for a long time, for over a decade, where we've been selling assets that simply don't show the same growth profile as our major market assets, our core assets. And so, like I said, year over year, we've been pretty, let's say, serial uh, sellers of properties. But last year, we recognized that in order to get where we want to get to uh, in a fairly expedited manner, we ought to kind of put a, um, a process in place that will accelerate our increase in major market exposure. And the best way to do that is it's sort of addition by subtraction. And we started selling. Uh, we announced in October of 2017 that we were going to go to market and sell up to 200 assets for a value of, oh, sorry, 100 assets <laughs> with a value of approximately $2 billion. And we're well into that process at this point. We've uh, you know announced a number of disposition transactions, and we're in the midst of a number of of ones that have not yet been announced, but that are in the hopper. Uh, so the process is going well. And I think where this uh, will end up in the end of uh, 2019 is a company that has almost you know over 90% of its income coming out of the six major Canadian markets and a grouping of assets that really every one of them will have a story. We'll have less assets, but every one of them will have a future, either be it you know a redevelopment story, a mixed use play, or you know ultimately a, just a retail intensification uh, we will be left with you know what we believe to be the strongest portfolio of mixed use or retail assets in Canada, and I think there's a lot of value to that. Um, but I also think that we'll have a great growth profile. So um, that was sort of the nature of the disposition program, which you know the disposition and the proceeds of which we will use to fund in part our residential initiative, Rio mm-hmm. Can Living, or our mixed use initiative. So that's the disposition process. The Rio Can Living evolution, I'll call it, was, I think it came about a few years ago, a number of years ago, um, because we've done a few mixed-use projects in our history, but but when we started kind of putting a bow around it and saying, this is our strategy going forward, it really came out of the recognition that we as a retail landlord had a number of tremendously located transit-oriented mm-hmm. properties that by and large housed retail on them covering about 25 to 40% of the land in which they, you know, they were on. And they were in tremendous communities, and most of them were transit-oriented, particularly with the advent of the Eglinton LRT line that they're building here in Toronto or the one that they're building up through Mississauga and Brampton, but also in areas like Ottawa where they're extending the LRT line there and in Calgary where, you know, there's already a very well-established LRT line. And we had a number of properties that were located right along these mm-hmm. transit lines. And so we felt that it would be incumbent upon us as good, active, responsible landlords to take these very valuable lands and do more with them, to take them to their highest and best use. And as opposed to simply talking about it, we actually invested the capital and human resources to do something about it. And we ultimately went and uh, and we had a number of these entitled or rezoned to permit these mixed-use developments. We've, you know, we've done this with, I think, the support of the communities and the cities in which we're building because, like I said, they're transit-oriented. We're building the places where I think the cities want us to build and the communities around us are happy to see these types of developments uh, come up where there used to be sort of an older uh, shopping center. And so we've really started in earnest getting these entitlements, but also building these assets, which will form the basis of Rio Can Living. And so, you know, we announced this brand Rio Can Living earlier uh, this year, and really that was predicated on the belief that we were going to offer something to our constituents that was a little different than anyone else can. And we thought that we want to attach a name and a presence to that initiative. And that is the Rio Can Living Initiative. 
curious and just make the comment because it just kind of came to me. It's not Rio Can residential, it's Rio Can living because right. there's a difference. So you might be able to talk about that vision and why it is called living. Sure. I mean, I think what we're, our objective is at Rio Can living is to bring to our residential tenants a lifestyle and create a community within a bigger community that will be the pride of the city uh, and the communities in which they live in a sort of a hub for those communities. And the reason we suggest that it's a lifestyle is we do want to do what look a lot of other developers are doing, which is build state-of-the-art facilities, great amenities, um, you know, technology forward buildings. But I think what we also know how to do at Rio Can because of our deep and long-standing retail expertise is to bring the right element of mix of uses into these developments. So you're not just buying a place to hang your hat and sleep. You're buying a place where you are now integrated into a number of great vibrant uses. And so when we say Rio Can Living, we're not just talking about like I said, apartment buildings. Uh, an apartment building. We're talking about this great, vibrant retail use at grade, coupled with, I think, a great living experience, which will be highlighted by tremendous amenities that are perfectly suitable for you know the the demographic that we're trying to cater to. And more importantly, you know, it's one thing just having retail at grade. What we want to do is actually elevate the experience by having our national retailers come in and sort of participate in a cross-promotional program where, for instance, you have like a national movie chain distributor coming into Rio Can Living sites and offering a weekly first-run showing of one mm. of their movies. Or, for instance, a national restaurant chain coming in having tasting sessions or the LCBO, for instance, or other like uh, provincial liquor organizations having, um, you know, uh, some sort of wine tasting in our Rio Can Living facilities. So you're really bringing this retail, this, this rich and deep retail past to the forefront of your residential tenants and therefore giving them this extra proposition at Rio right. Can Living. So then that's, I guess, in, that is the theory or that is the, the motivation behind it, but you're actually putting it into practice. So why don't we segue that into the well and just talk about what it is you're doing there, what the vision sure. is, and and maybe talk about the specific components that are ongoing right now. Sure. I, sorry, just to go before we do that, for those that are unfamiliar, the well is a, is a large mixed-use development on the corner of uh, University and Front Street, sort of right, uh, sorry, Spadina. Spadina and Front Street, right, it's right down the, the northwest corner uh, in downtown Toronto that uh, was announced about a year ago now. And maybe you talk to the yeah. specifics and, and who's who are the players and sure. what is the whole program? What does the whole project look or, like? If you can rewind it right back. So, I mean, I'd love yeah, to go about ahead. the land. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Good, good idea. Let's yeah. start there. Sure. Yeah. So um, in 2012, the Globe and Mail and the Thompson family announced that they were uh, looking to sell the lands in which the old Globe and Mail printing facilities and offices were located, which was a fairly sizable site at um, Front and Spadina. And it was originally actually um, bought or put under contract by a pure residential developer. And ultimately, they couldn't make the deal work. We, at the same time, had just formed an alliance with a company called Allied Properties Reed, who's a predominantly an office player, but its CEO, Michael Emery, and uh, our CEO at Sunshine had this view that, you know, together we can identify sites in, in predominantly downtown Toronto and assemble land around sites that perhaps are already owned by one of us or, you know, just come to market and do something really special with them because we both had our respective areas of expertise, be it office for Allied or retail for RioCan. And so we just entered into that venture. And there's a number of other projects that we can talk about later, which are now the byproduct of that venture, uh, as well as another company called Diamond Corp, which is uh, run by an individual named Stephen Diamond, which is a fund that was established to effectively buy unzoned sites, use the principal's expertise. Steve Diamond was a former planning lawyer, actually at McCarthy Tetra, where I'd known him uh, for many years, and add value to a site by getting it rezoned. So we entered into, when we knew that these Globe Mail lands were available, we entered into a three-way joint venture with Allied and a Diamond Corp. Diamond Corp owned 20% and Allied owned 40% and Rio Can owned 40%. And we assembled the lands. There was two transactions that took place there. One was the original Globe Mail building. And then the Thompson family actually owned another site immediately adjacent to it, which they had envisioned building a new Globe Mail headquarters at 
to the west of the Globe and Mail building. To the east. To the it was east. actually fronting on Spadina. Oh, okay. Which was a sort of a vacant parking lot. Exactly. Exactly. It was a combination corner, of the yeah, parking lot and the dealership. Land, yeah. And so um, when, you know, we were going to first do a sale leaseback with uh, the Thompson family and, and the Globe and Mail, but they ultimately sort of pivoted and changed their mind. And we ended up buying that portion of land in addition to the uh, initial portion of land we owned. And we created a close to eight acre parcel of land in downtown Toronto, which, you know, for those of you familiar with what's going on in Toronto, that's a pretty unique uh, thing yeah, to doesn't, have. Doesn't exist really. Exactly. Yeah, and, people and try and put up 50 stories in a quarter acre if they can. You know? yeah. <laughs> uh, a quarter acre, you could do two towers. <laughs> um, and uh, so we elected, we being uh, Rio Can and, and its partners, elected to build something more than just residential there. Because I think, you know, everyone who was looking at that site, much to the chagrin of the city of Toronto, were simply looking to build that ubiquitous type of residential that you're seeing everywhere, just tower upon tower with no vibrancy during the day or at night. I mean, it was just where people came and slept and then left. And there's examples of that, as you know, in yes, the city. We, can, we don't need to name them, but there's lots and lots of examples in the city now where it could be pretty drab if you're reside in those neighborhoods. Exactly. And so we had envisioned something more. And so we went to the city with a proposition that we could provide more of an environment where it is, you know, and it's overuse. So forgive me, live, work and play. And, um, you know, Steve Diamond, who was tremendous at, um, at getting entitlements, was able to have the city agree to ultimately allow us to build over 3 million square feet of mixed use, a uh, mixed use development, a community, mm-hmm. really, a new neighborhood, really in downtown Toronto, where, you know, we see it as sort of an extent of the King West neighborhood, uh, and it's going to have over 400,000 square feet of retail. It's going to have well over a million square feet of residential and over a million square feet of office. And I think the key, the, the one that we're focused on the most, obviously, is Rio Can, is the, is the retail. But the ownership structure of that has changed slightly in that, A, we ultimately bought out uh, Steve Diamond and Diamond Corp's interest in the commercial piece. And we sold off the air rights to the residential for just about the same amount of money as we bought the lands for. So we effectively walked away having our lands free uh, for free. And so, you know, we sold the air rights to two parties. One was Tridel, who's a prominent Toronto condo developer. And the other was a a company by the name of Woodbourne, who uh, builds apartment buildings, um, rental apartment buildings. And we thought that that's a perfect combination because if we sold it all to a condo developer, that's a lot of absorption to happen all at once. And our objective was really to have whomever owns these air rights to build them out as quickly as possible after we deliver them the podiums so that we wouldn't have a tremendous amount of disruption to whatever retail we put in at grade. And so uh, knowing that Woodbourne was an apartment owner and operator, we knew that they would obviously want to, they don't have to wait for pre-sales. They just build on spec by definition. Now, Rio Can itself, without its partners, ended up keeping a 50% interest in in the biggest residential tower along with Woodbourne. So that tower, which is going to house well over 550 units, will be a marquee residential tower for Rio Can, which we're very proud of. And that one is, uh, you know, slated for, we hope it'll be uh, ready for tenanting in 2020, 2021. But the retail is, again, going to be a very unique offering. It's not conventional retail because it really is an extension of King Street West. And so we have, you know, designed something that I think, you know, A, the city and the community will be very proud of and that Rio Can is an allied as, as owners will be very proud of in that it's, um, you know, it's an outdoor, you're exposed to the outdoor elements, but it's going to have sort of a glass canopy uh, over it and it's going to have a food market it's going to have some conventional users and a lot of restaurants that will be more in the spirit of what uh, what exists on King Street West and the design and architecture are really special because we you know David Pontarini from uh, uh, Harari Pontarini who's a prominent Toronto architect has designed something in the spirit of King West, a lot of red brick facade, a lot of sort of that industrial look that defines that King West space. And it's, it's going to be a really special design. And like I said, one that Rio can is, is, has a lot of conviction about one that'll make Toronto very proud and one that'll make that community very proud. 
the retail suite mix, is it predominantly sort of the similar size units? Is there a grocery anchor or, or something predominant like that? Or is it, again, more in the flavor of, of King Street West, where it's, it really is a lot of smaller storefronts? There will be a couple of larger users, but not not your traditional grocery anchored center. It's not at all like something Rio Can is known for, which is right. community-based uh, shopping centers, like convenience-based shopping centers. But two, it won't be something like you know you'd see at the Eaton Center, for instance. It's something entirely different. There will be a couple of larger anchors, but I think they're going to bring more of a specialty offering than like you know uh, upscale sporting apparel type things like right. that will be one of the anchors, and perhaps you know books or entertainment being another. And then there's going to be a lot of smaller or mid-size uses. Like I said, there'll be a lot of restaurant uses there. And there's also going to be a food market on one of the levels that'll be, I think, quite a special offering. So would you then not consider, uh, if you you look in the vicinity, Eden Center and the Dufferin Mall, I guess would be the next nearest large-scale malls. You're talking 400,000 square feet. That's a sizable enterprise. So would you consider them to be less of a competitor than, say, street front retail near Pi, given your tenant mix? Very much so. I think that um, you know the Eaton Center comparables or the Dufferin Mall comparables, those are something entirely different. Dufferin Mall being sort of more necessity-based provider of, of services and the Eaton Center being like sort of a tourist attraction, big enclosed mall. This really is going to be something that will reflect the characteristics of King West. And so, yes, our competition really would be that street front retail on King West. But I think there's room for both. I think that King West is so, thankfully for the city, because it's so vibrant, so jam-packed with some great offerings, restaurants and services and the like. And I think there's going to be plenty of room to have that type of use spill out into our site, which is immediately south. And there's going to be some nice uh, sort of interstitial laneways that take you from our site right up to King West. Cool. Not even to mention that given that you're building or that that project will contain a large residential element, you're providing the demand for the retails retailers that you're adding to the market. So it's right above, right? And we're going to have office uses too. So we're bringing a number of, of constituents by virtue of the uh, the mixed use uh, components of the of the asset. So we're very excited about it. I mean, it's a very complex um, building process, as you can imagine, for those mixes of uses and all the parties involved. But we've got a great team at RioCan, our development team is exceptional and you know so too is is the allied development team and so we've uh we've worked very well with uh, the residential owners being um woodbourne and tridell we've created what will be a very special and unique offering the office component is that going to be done on spec or are you hunting major tenants right now we hope to have uh, a great announcement in the next uh, in the short little while. We we're confident that we will have uh the fair share of that pre-leased it's not amazon is it just kidding. <laughs> um, I think we only have just over a million square feet. I think they need like 10 million, 10 million square million. feet. No, I'm so. teasing. Okay, I think we should we should move towards Rio Can Living and some mm-hmm. other projects that you're working on. Mm-hmm. So I guess you've been in this role. It sounds like it's a bit of a transition for you to go from the investment group to do the access dispositions now to really focusing on the growth of the Rio Can Living. And you know, clearly you had a great understanding of the assets that were already under management that you guys owned. What's the process now to identify where next? What are you? Gonna, which projects are you intensifying, and how are you going through? What are maybe? What's the algorithm you're going through mm-hmm. to make sh- the decisions on where you allocate your time and resources? The, the green light versus red light. Yeah, or or this is number six versus that one's the twelfth in line. Like, how do you prioritize? It's a, good, it's a great question. And so, just to clarify, I'm doing both. I'm, I'm still oh, wearing that investments oh. hat. So, uh, yeah, you can see you're all the ta- gr- the gray you're hair. You're talented. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, some would say or some would say just misguided. <laughs> but um, Rio Can as an organization is exceptionally thoughtful as to how we allocate our unit holders' money. Mm-hmm. And so we we don't develop too much at any given time. We always keep it to a relatively meager component of our overall balance sheet. So it's always single digits relative to the rest of our balance sheet. You know, so we focus on the sites that are potentially the the most ready for development where we know that there's a market for the mixed use offering that we intend to bring and there's transit there. So oftentimes we're waiting for the transit to come to our sites before we start building in earnest. That said, we recognize that getting zoning takes a long time. So when we are when we know that a transit hub is coming the way of one of our existing sites, we start well in advance because we identify that prospect well in advance and we start the process well in advance. And at RioCam, we've got a team of 31 seasoned mixed use, either development or construction folks who 
are great at taking this idea that myself and the rest of the senior executives come up with saying, hey, that could be a great intensification site, and actually putting it to work and getting the entitlements and getting, you know, another big process is actually detenanting some of these mm-hmm. shopping centers because, I mean, tenants are great until they're not. And yeah. when you're redeveloping, um, you know, it's a long process that one, again, that we start well in advance. Uh, you know, for instance, if there's a renewal on a center that we know in the short to medium term will be redeveloped, our crack leasing team will have the wherewithal to say to that tenant, look, you know, maybe we'll have a, a slight reduction in your rent, but we want a redevelopment clause. And that saves us a lot of pain and hassle when it comes time to actually put shovel in ground. And so, you know, the process that we undergo at Rio Can and the prioritization, it's a long process, one that requires a lot of forethought and a lot of input from all of our different uh, constituents within Rio Can. And, you know, we kind of, again, allocate both human resources and capital resources to the projects that we think are going to be the most marketable the soonest. And um, that's generally the the route that we've taken. And so if you look along, for instance, Eglinton Avenue here in Toronto, where the LRT is being built, uh, if you've driven along it recently, uh, along Eglinton, you'll... Don't drive along Eglinton. Exactly. You'll be cursing, um, but look, short-term pain for long-term gain. And you'll see that we have many sites that are along there. And we, we had this vision of this intensification so long ago because we knew this LRT was announced. So we started getting these things entitled and detenanted. You know, many years ago, we started that process. And now that we are, um, you know, the LRT is close to fruition, we are in a position where we've got, you know, sort of a priority. And these are, these are obviously high on those priorities and the, the capital set aside to fund those developments. So it's a very thoughtful. It's a bit process. of a transition, a bit of a of a shift within Rio Can. When I mean, it sounds like this has been coming for a number of years, but mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. But you didn't really have the development, you know, entitlement expertise to undertake this sort of from the get go. So clearly, you've been slowly but surely ascertaining the expertise, whether that's through hiring or you know what what has been the process to get mm-hmm. to the, the this you know the crack team that you've got. I, I know you referred to leasing, but I'm sure you'd refer to your development team or anybody else as as sort of the best in the business, and that doesn't. Kind Happen overnight. No, it's it, it's definitely been a long buildup and a very um, worthwhile one. I mean, you know, first of all, I'm thankful that we have the balance sheet to be able to build a platform. It's not easy, right? You know, we've always had a development group that was great at building. You know, what we've been known for for many years, which is uh, single story retail suburban or even urban. But I think over the last sort of five years or so, we've recognized where the future is and we wanted to get into mixed use. So we've gone out and hired some great experts in in mixed use or high rise. So we've got people that used to be with some other prominent high rise developers, um, Tridel and Freed right. and helps uh, that you've got the brand like Rio can where when you come knocking, I think most people go, okay, I need to take, I need to consider this strongly. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, going back to my statements earlier about attracting talent and how it's critical for us to make sure we do have that brand. It's something we're working on more and more because I think it is, you know, what we've seen and recognized in this whole process of building up the appropriate team for our mixed use program at Rio Can Living is that it is all about the people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you do hire a rock star, so to speak, it saves your unit holders a ton of money and a ton of time because they've got that expertise that is not unique, but it's not easy to come by. And so, uh, you know, and it goes beyond just straight up development or construction or leasing. There's also, we have great marketing people now who, again, have that background in how to market a residential or a mixed use development so that it will be one step ahead of its competition. There's a lot of buildings going up now. I mean, you could see it if you look out your window at this office building, there's a lot of cranes in the city of Toronto. What Rio Can Living is focused on is differentiating ourselves from our competitors, and you need a good marketing, a good branding understanding to make that happen. And so I'm very proud also of that marketing side of the equation, which I think we've, we've staffed up very well. I think we would be remiss if we didn't uh, ask you about how, you, how you're financing these. I mean, especially in the apartment arena, there's obviously CMHC insured financing, which is unique to, uh, to apartments. So how do you go about financing most of these? Everything through First National. <laughs> Good answer. Maury made him say that, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the financing strategy is key to this overall strategy because, as as many of you know, financing residential projects, um, either construction or term financing, comes with, um, I would say, many positive attributes. It's generally 
less expensive than financing retail assets simply because you can get CMHC insurance on it. And so when it comes to term financing, our objective really is, you know, as, a, as an entity, we try to keep our leverage fairly low. I mean, we've been sort of around that 40% leverage mark as, a, as an organization for quite some time now. You know, it'll dip a little below, it'll rise a little above, but in that sort of 38 to 42% bandwidth. And uh, that's sort of loan to value of our whole portfolio. Uh, and what we would like to do and what we started doing is unencumbering a lot of our retail assets. And then we would sort of try and maximize the financing on some of our residential projects. So portfolio wide, we'll still have that 40% ratio, but we'll get what I would say is more favorable financing terms on this residential program. So we're happy to lever up the residential assets and delever the retail assets, uh, which I think will be a, a very good result because again, cost of capital is is means a lot in this business. And you know, the the response from the banking community, the lending community to our initiatives have been very favorable. We've gotten um, very flexible and and good banks and other institutions to work with us on the construction financing. And then when it comes time for term financing, as I mentioned, CMHC is a very logical approach. And I think you know our buildings will fit well within what CMHC is looking to ensure because it's going to be high quality and it's going to be, you know, it'll have a, a nice long lifespan with very consistent income. It goes without saying clearly that, that these developments and this this project, this program is for long-term holds, right? This is not a build and sell. This is a build and hold for the future, right? I mean, 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years, presumably, right? That That is the objective. Very much so. We want to, uh, we will, I'm very confident about this, have the best uh, in-class multi-residential platform uh, in, in Canada. All new build, uh, all with state-of-the-art first-class right. amenities, and we want to hold it for as long as possible. But that being said, I should just clarify, there are some sites that we will develop upon which are just very large in nature where it will be logical to do a mix of other types of residential housing, be it condo, where we sell off the units to third-party buyers, or be it um, seniors housing or hotel, mm -hmm. uh, depending on the size of the site. But that said, our priority really is to build this multi-unit res platform it's great income, it's consistent income, and it supplements and, I would say, mixes perfectly with the retail offering that Rio Can is Canada's largest retail landlord, has to, uh, has to put forward. So we're, we're really pleased about that combination that we can provide, and uh, we think it's great for the—it augurs really well for the future of Rio Can and its unit holders. One of the comments you made earlier that I, I want to touch on is um, technology forward mm -hmm. and just what that means and, and what you envision. We've, we've been hitting on this a number of times with different uh, episodes we've done, and it's something that's very fascinating to me because, again, you, you don't know what's coming, but— the easiest one to talk about is is you know automated cars and the need for parking lots and how many parking spaces do you put and how far down do you go do you have a below grade even at all do you think it's necessary you know what what kind of strategies is RioCan deploying as I said most of our mixed use developments are transit oriented so there's there is some form of transit directly below or uh, immediately adjacent to a lot of these projects which means that the need for cars and therefore the need for parking is diminished somewhat and we're quite proud of that regardless of the of the potential for automated automobiles right you're just saying even today yeah. if nothing changes there's not as much need for a number of parking spaces not as much now yeah. the the issue is or the reality is that in certain cases the cities in which we're building haven't really caught on to the fact that you really do need less parking stalls mm -hmm. and they're still insistent that you build a certain level and to our retailers who are excellent in what they do and they're still they are very forward thinking they still do hold on to the notion that they want places for their constituents customers, their yeah. customers to park and so for that reason we certainly do have underground parking facilities in the majority of our mixed use uh, centers particularly in Toronto I think that there still will be the need for these because you know people like me are dinosaurs and they often uh, you know have trouble letting go but that said the parking lots are going to look different than they have in the past we're going to have conduits with you know electrical outlets for all of the uh, electrical cars that are now becoming much more dominant in this market. There's also going to be ride-sharing uh, or car-sharing programs in each one of our buildings. Mm -hmm. And so that, in my mind, is a great sustainable uh, initiative that will, again, augur well for the environment and augur well for our communities, because I think it's a nice thing for the residents to have. 
Do you have a, a certain unit goal? Do you have a number on your wall written, you know, 5,000 units by 2025? Or is there a strategy revolving around, you know, portfolio size? Well, we've identified a number of sites, like close to 50 sites that we we think are high potential mixed use sites in our portfolio that we've actually started working on. And I think if we were to be successful in building all of those out, and was, this would take a while, this would take up to 10 years perhaps, you know, our objective would be to get up to somewhere around 20,000 units, which is substantial. And you know, it's still, it, it's a great diversification of income um, because while we're very proud to be a retail landlord, I think to also supplement that with residential income is a nice element. And so to get to that number would be tremendous and we'd like to do it. But I think in the shorter term, to get to somewhere around 5,000 over the next five or six years would be a really great uh, achievement. Yeah, at 20,000, that would make you one of the largest landlords, apartment landlords in the country. Just for context sake, for everybody who doesn't track it, you know, normally the you know, largest REITs would be up in that range. So you funny that you mentioned as a, as a supplement to uh, you know your retail holdings, which is of course the largest in the country. But that is a, a very sizable portfolio. It is, and I think it's meaningful, and it's all going to be, as I said, purpose built, new built rental. I mean, a lot of the REITs that are out there now, the uh, the existing residential REITs are a lot of them are old stock buildings. These are going to be brand new with a, a unique offering because we're going to have again up to date amenities up-to-date design and architecture. I think if you look at, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, if you go and look at a unit in one of the older buildings in this or other cities, you know, a thousand square feet, if you look at it compared to a 650 square foot new built unit, actually looks about the same size because of efficient design mm-hmm. and openness and floor to ceiling windows. It actually has the effect of making smaller spaces look much bigger and efficient and so I think, you know, the ability to deliver that type of living experience to the market is, A, something that's in great need. I think there's a big supply shortage for good residential units. Uh, and B, it's, it's something that I think a, a savvy and um, well-versed resident will really appreciate. So given that your entire portfolio will be new build, when the Ontario government announced that they were going to remove the 1991 rent control exemption, how much pause did that give you? Did you adjust your underwriting? And did you uh, did you scream to the skies, or what? Uh, what was your well, reaction? I have actually an electric shock uh, wire that's uh, attached to me that our head of communications uh, has a button to press if I ever start going off and giving my real opinions of the rent control <laughs> legislation. So I'm not going to take the bait. I will tell you that Rio Can is a long term thinker. Rio Can Living is a long term thinker. And the legislation that is currently in place that was amended um, last year by Premier Wynne and her Liberal government is um, something that doesn't phase Rio Can living all too much. We didn't have crazy prognostications of year-over-year rental increases as it was in our modeling. And so it didn't derail our efforts. I think that uh, you know we're, we're looking at these as long-term holds, as creators of net asset value in our portfolio uh, and tremendous community and city building uh, projects. So really, you know, this change in legislation did not throw us off course um, and it didn't impact our numbers tremendously. I mean, yes, our 10-year IRRs, if you look at that, will be a little bit um, lower based on the on the, the rent dampening uh, exercises of the uh, the rent control legislation. Um, but by and large, it's it's not going to impact our, our strategy. I don't, I don't mean this to sound like a shameless plug, but certainly the CMHC financing options of locking in your interest rates the day you get your occupancy certificate saves you a lot of risk. I mean, that was one of the, the items we heard from a lot of our developer uh, guests and others that we've talked to in the industry saying, you know, the challenge, of course, now is I used to just rent up as quickly as possible at the lower rents. And when that one year came up, I would just bump the rents because I knew I needed to get my tenancy in and get my occupancy so that I could get my term financing. But with that CMHC, with the CMHC products, you got you can lock interest rate without having to worry about having any tenants in and allow you to take that time, maybe it's 18 months or two years to make sure you get tenants at the max maximum rates just to you know make sure that you've got your, your your greatest return. Now my understanding is that that product is available only to people who use CMHC for construction financing. Correct. Yes. That's correct. That is not a takeout option. Right. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's a I mean I think look the beauty of this city and in large part this country is that 
the other players within this uh, ecosystem that we call real estate are very savvy and very creative, and that includes the lending community. And I think there's a recognition that you know if the industry is evolving because of legislation or simply market shifts, so too will you know the finance community. Mm-hmm. And I think in this case, CMHC through that product has certainly done that. And I think in, there's many examples of it. And I think I, I give a lot of credit to the once stayed banking community and lending community who sort of said, unless you fit within this very small box, we're simply not lending. They're much more open to and creative uh, with new concepts. Well, it's curious to say that. And, I, and I, we had uh, Sean Hildebrand of Urban Nation on um, a while ago, and we'll, we will have him on again shortly. But back then when we had him on, it must have been about two years, we were, there was still a discussion in the, in the market, in the industry about, was it, there's a supply or demand issue. You know, when you looked across, you mentioned cranes, but, you know, it felt like two or three years ago, there were twice as many cranes on the horizon. You kept thinking to yourself, there's no way there's the demand here to absorb all the supply. And, and when we had Sean on, Sean's like, no, no, you're missing the point. There's needs to be 20 times more cranes in order to meet the demand. Like, watch, it's coming. And I think now it's without question, we have a, we have a serious supply issue in housing across the country, predominantly in Toronto and, and Vancouver, all of us in this industry are all on the same page now. It's like, okay, what can we do just to help, you know, regardless of the headwinds we're, we're getting sometimes from legislation changes to make sure that we're providing the supply to keep housing affordable for Canadians? I agree with you. And I mean, look, you know, as a public company, you know, you like to say you're altruistic, but of course it, it also has to meet the, uh, or adhere to the principles of making your unit holders some money. So I can't come out and pretend to say, look, we're only focused on creating or helping that supply side. But the truth is, we feel uh, there is a duty on on developers such as ourselves to create good product that will alleviate that supply and, problem. And stay in the test of time, right? That will last for a long time and, you sure. know, that will be there in 50 years or 100 years, right? Absolutely. So. And I mean, durability and location are two critical elements for us. But, I, you know, I think, um, you know, what Sean, I'm sure, spoke about when he was on your show is that there's this huge trend towards urbanization. I think that you know cities are changing, and it's not just Toronto. It's also, in certain respects, Ottawa, where we're developing, and Calgary, where we're developing, and certainly Vancouver, where you know the old notion of growing up and then buying a house out in the suburbs, uh, it's not for everyone. And I think there's a huge trend for people to want to live closer to downtown so they don't have to drive. And so they can get some of the joys of city living now because our cities evolve so much and it's a great experience to be in that downtown core and likewise with the other big Canadian cities. And so I think that, um, you know, the supply within those cores where people want to live is absolutely constrained. And I do think Sean had it right. I think it's going to continue to struggle with keeping up with the immigration or migration from other parts mm-hmm. of the country that we in Toronto face and, like I said, some of the other major markets face. But moreover, just a lot of people who are looking to downsize or urbanize and move into the downtown core. So uh, we're happy to be part of the creators of that supply. And we just, you know, we at Rio can want to do it right. It's the one thing to just throw up a building and, you know, create that yeah, supply. Build it, they will come. But Exactly. Yeah. But we want to go beyond that. We think there's a responsibility on us to, to really build it right. We always like to end off, you know, our discussion. But obviously you've spoken about uh, Rio Can's investment strategies and why you're doing you know these kinds of elements and urban versus suburban versus I guess even smaller markets. Uh, but we want to ask you if you're to take your bank account and dump it all into a single asset class and you had to leave it in just one city, what would it be and why? And this is not the Rio Can answer. This is the uh, the, the Jonathan Gitlin answer. Well, based on the state of my bank account, I would be buying a Mars bar at the local Max Milk and maybe getting some change back. The truth is that, and this is going to be Toronto-centric, so for your national listeners, uh, you know, let me offer an apology in advance, but I've seen the strength of simply urban streetfront properties and how they have increased in value over the last 20 years on sort of the edges of the urban core of Toronto. And I think if I were to be putting money into a real estate class, it really would be well-positioned street front, you know, older retail where there's ultimately going to be a push for development or intensification in that area because you see a lot of areas, you know, on the outskirts of, of the Toronto core that have simply gentrified in a tremendously favorable manner. And I think if you own the right areas there, either they're going to be much better than they were in the sense that you'll be able to get better rents when that that area uh, gentrifies, or it'll ultimately be something more. And I think for me, with my 
limited resources, that's exactly where I'd put my money. Main street, hopefully transit oriented, uh, smaller street front retail properties. And I think that uh, over time, there's, uh, like I said, I have great confidence in this city and its growth prospects. And uh, I would I would love to own that type of, re- we're of building, real estate. We're building so many apartments and condos downtown. It's inevitable that there's always going to be people walking around. So that, that makes sense. That logic makes sense. And you, for the, for the uh, Toronto listeners with a, a little more resources than yourself, do you, do you have an intersection in mind? Is there anything that really catches your eye when you talk about the fringes mm-hmm. of the core? Well, again, I think, uh, you know, the junction, which is sort of a little, you know, a little west of the core has shown tremendous growth in this transit right there. I love the Bloor West line, like the entire Bloor West subway line, uh, anything along that corridor. I think Dufferin and Bloor now is going to see a tremendous amount of development with the school board selling their big site there to a couple of local developers. Toronto, unfortunately, at this point suffers from uh, limited mass transit. And so anything along those those quarters is great. And then again, shameless plug for Rio Can, but you know we have our head office at Young and Eglinton, and we've got a lot of properties along that Eglinton LRT. And I will tell you, just seeing the growth that has surrounded that community now because of the advent in large part of this LRT, I love that intersection. I love Young and Eglinton. I think it's a great um, alternative hub for the downtown core. And so I think that'll continue to see very, very strong growth. So Young and Eglinton all the way. <laughs> if you uh, just woke up out of a coma 15 years and stood at the intersection, you wouldn't even recognize it. Oh, it's amazing. I was there last week and I, I grew up, I grew up in that neighborhood. So I'm very familiar. I hadn't been there in, in probably just even six months and just mm-hmm. staying on that corner. It does have this almost vet downtown vibe now. I mean, if unless it's noon, you can't see the sun because of all these towers that are all over the place. It's, well, and, it's quite amazing. Yeah. And we're actually involved in, I mean, one of our developments that we're very proud of is, uh, is actually at the Northeast corner where there's two buildings there. One mm-hmm. of which is condo. The other one is apartment. And then we've also got the second largest and most prominent TV branch that's actually opening up there. So that, again, great example of mixed use and a great example of city building. So that, yeah, that intersection is entirely unrecognizable. And if you looked at it 10 years ago, it was almost a bit of a blight. I mean, at our head office, there was this windswept open area (laughs) that everyone thought that the city actually owned, but we did. And we developed, we ultimately developed three stories of great retail on top of that, which is now a welcome addition to that community. And then on the other side of the street, there was, I would say, rundown retail that really was not becoming of that prominent intersection. So now you've got this, you know, we're, we're creating this great open area there along with some great retail at grade and these great uh, living opportunities right above a subway. I think it's great and it's, and evolution. It's north on Young, south on Young, and then and then not really east, not really west on Eglinton, but east on Eglinton, there's a ton of development going along there all the way to Mount Pleasant. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. Beyond Mount Pleasant, it's Beyond all the Mount way Pleasant, to, sure, I mean, Lee side, and then yeah, right. uh, you go all the way to Don Mills and even Scarborough. Right. I mean, the Golden That LRT, Mile. that LRT, I think, is, is the, the answer to why all this is occurring, right? It's, it was a necessary, I think, a necessary addition to this city and I think it's a great addition to the city and I think like I said if you're driving along Eglinton right now you'd be cursing me but the truth is short term pain long term gain as a hedge against that you could buy Rio Can units and then you'll be more welcome (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) well thanks very much that was wonderful great conversation really appreciated having you on Aaron, Adam, thank you very much it was terrific being here and uh, hopefully we didn't put everyone to sleep (laughs) No, I doubt it Thank you very much. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, you know, as always, subscribe to the uh, podcast feed. Tell a friend who might be into uh, the world of retail or apartments. And uh, Jonathan, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.